going to get going here. We're in our series of lessons on if, if Christ were our teacher, and uh, uh, we're in our second lesson on offenses. So we, we had previously considered the kingdom of God and spiritual gifts, and uh, now we're considering offenses. And uh, we're considering it primarily from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a, a Bible with you or on your phone, uh, you could turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is uh, the place where the Holy Spirit of God wants us to go uh, if somebody ever offends us. And uh, we'll find help there. Or if somebody ever approaches us and says that we've offended them. And so both things could happen. Uh, let's go ahead and read uh, verses 7 through 14. And we read them last week, but we'll go ahead and read them again. And uh, uh, I'll start, and then then uh, Brother Brother John, if you read after me, and we'll each take turn reading a verse until we've read from verse 7 all the way through verse 14. Okay? So, Matthew chapter 18. Yeah, Matthew chapter 18 from uh, verse 7 through verse 14. Okay. Uh, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense come. Brother John? Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend, offend thee, cut them off, and cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into, into life or named rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye open thee, broke it out, and cast it from thee, it is better for thee, thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Verse number 10. See you that you don't despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that they are angels in heavens always see the face of my Father in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. How think ye, if a man hath an hundred sheep and one of them gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is lost, which is gone astray? Verse number 13, Jim. And then verse 14, even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, uh, I know we started uh, this uh, last week, uh, but we're going to go ahead and I kind of uh, rewrote my script and that's why I also, uh, when Cameron and Vicki were here, uh, they both found it helped them a lot to focus and, and remember if they could look at 
so that's why I'm providing it. If you want a, a file, if you want a, 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 so that you can look at the text as I'm teaching my lesson, uh, then you know, just give Jin your email address and she'll send it out to you. So, uh, the, considering the severity of the language in this passage, it should give us plenty of reason to treat one another with utmost kindness. And don't you think that's the way a Christian should always behave? Okay, maybe you don't. My wife, my wife agrees with me, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, the rest of you, I'm not so sure. Uh, but after all, we are we are the family of God. Amen. Amen. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna spend eternity together. And and uh, you, you know you can you can be mad at me and go to a different church if you want, uh, but we're both going to be there in eternity, right? And uh, you say, well, maybe I won't have to see you in eternity. No, in, in eternity we'll all want to see each other, and there won't be any bitterness, there won't be any animosity, there won't be any feuding or fussing or or having a, a, a bad spirit one towards another. So. Uh, we've seen previously that uh, the little ones which believe in me, which is how this uh, chapter began, because the, the disciples were concerned which one of them was going to be the greatest, and who was going to get the job of vice president in the kingdom of Christ. And so they said, uh, Lord, you, you, you know, we can't decide, so I guess it's your pick anyways, and which one, which one of us is the greatest? And so the Lord took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and he said, you see this little child? He said, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who's like this little child. And so, uh, we, we've seen that the, the little ones which believe in me can either be children which haven't reached the age of accountability. Do you understand the age of accountability? You know, before a child, I think the age of accountability is defined by uh, Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11 where it talked about the children of Nineveh that didn't know their right hand from their left hand. And God was concerned about them. And uh, so, uh, to me, that is the Bible's um, uh, showing us what, what we can consider the age of accountability. And it's, a, it's when a child has learned enough to know their right hand from their left hand. And, and so, uh, whether, whether this passage or the, the verses, the first six verses, were about little children and offenses against little children, but it also says against them which believe in me. And uh, so, clearly, a child that believes in the Lord God has reached the age of accountability. So, the Lord is here strongly warning His disciples that they should carefully consider their words and their actions so as not to offend others. This message isn't being given to the Jews. If you read the context, it, it was given only to the disciples. The disciples came privately to the Lord and said, who's the greatest? And then he's going to give them a lesson about offenses because ambition, personal ambition, and the desire to get to the top, even if you have to stand on other people's heads to do it, uh, that always creates offense. And so uh, the sober reality we find in verse number 7. The Lord Jesus did not paint the Christian life in false colors. The, the sober reality is that offenses will come. But that doesn't mean that God has ordained them or that He has decreed them. There are some... Uh, 
systems of theology out there, some, some you know, denominations which believe that God has decreed sin. Uh, that's, that's a terrible thing. Uh, God has not decreed our sin. And uh, it just means that, that offenses are the inevitable consequence of, of our sinful world that we live in. And we cannot avoid all offenses, but what we can do is avoid being dispensers of offenses. We can avoid dishing them out. And uh, we can also determine not to be offended by trivial and unintentional slights that are part and parcel of life under the sun. Uh, some offenses are, are real. Uh, you know, uh, I worked for a Christian man one time, and after I worked for him for about three months, because I'm kind of slow and not very good at math, I figured out that he was cheating me on my wages. He had been, he had been stealing my wages for three months because I had worked 50 to 60 hours a week at his company, and by law, he was required to pay me time and a half over 40 hours. That wasn't an option. That was by law he was required. And it, it occurred to me that he wasn't doing that. And I asked one of the other guys, a, a co-worker who wasn't a member of the same church, does he pay you overtime? And he's like, if he didn't pay me overtime, I'd go choke him to death. You know? And, uh, you know, that guy wasn't saved. And, and I approached the boss. I said, is there some problem why I'm not getting paid overtime and everybody else is? And he says, well, my secretary does that. And uh, I went to the secretary, and the secretary says, uh, no, he handles the payroll himself. And, you know, then the next month I got all my back pay back because, you know, but I could have, you know, I could have got really offended and, and um, made, made a big issue and, you know, because, let's face it, that guy was doing it on purpose and he was hoping that because we were members of the same church that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't call him out on it. And he was just cheap. He was a miser. And uh, so offenses are always going to come. We can determine not to be offended by them. We don't have to be. Psalm 119, 165, it says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now I know that, that there are people who were really abused as children, or maybe they suffered some, some terrible thing that's happened, and a thing that would be, you know, physically almost impossible not to be offended by. And, and, but I think what that verse is talking about um, Psalm 119, 165 is living in a state of being offended. It's, it's not that it doesn't happen, but, but when it does happen, we deal with it. And that's what, that's what Jesus wants to happen here. Offenses are going to come, but if we deal with them the right way, if we deal with them the Bible's way, then we can have peace and joy in our heart even though we live in a really ruddy world, even though we live in a terrible world where there are lots of bad things going on and uh, sometimes those bad things happen to us, but we can maintain uh, peace and joy in our hearts and that's, that's what we should all want to have. 
Uh, so considering uh, what Christ previously taught about the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom parables, and we studied those a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 13, we should resolve ourselves to the fact that offenses are going to come and, and, and uh, not to be easily offended, not to be easily offended. And since there are tares among the wheat, we, we cannot expect to go through life without offenses in church. Because Jesus said there's going to be tares. And if there's tares, they, they don't mind offending people. Uh, you know, before we became pastor, before I became pastor of Young Sun Baptist Church, we attended Soul First Baptist Church. And I was co-pastor for 13 years at the Soul First Baptist Church. <clears throat> the children in that church, including the children of deacons and leaders in the church, called my children some of the worst, most offensive names that, it is, that, that the Korean language affords. Now, my wife and I were blissfully ignorant because those kids could have said those things to our kids right in front of us and we had no idea what it meant. But my kids knew what it meant. My kids knew what it meant. You, you know, it often happens that, and I've seen this in every church that I've been a part of, some of the, the offenses that cause the greatest acrimony and the greatest uh, uh, bitterness between Christian people is when their kids act like kids. And then one mom or one dad will go to the other mom and dad and say, you know what your kid said to my kid? Oh, my kid would never say that. You know, there's uh, probably, I'll, I'll bet you my kids have said a lot of things that would shock me. Things that I never expected would come out of the mouth of my kids. But kids are kids. They're, they're dirty little sinners, them mothers. That's what they are. And, and they're still learning how to be gracious and courteous and how to be Christian. You know, not, you know, you don't become a Christian by how you behave. But, but even Christians have to learn how to behave. And uh, so offenses are going to come. They're going to come in church. And uh, we need to train our children to take responsibility for their words. We need to show them that the Bible teaches that every word we say, even the ones we whisper and we think nobody hears, God hears. And we can't hide it from Him. So, uh, but parents ought not to behave like children. When the children go to fussing and fighting and name-calling, the parents shouldn't stoop to behaving like the children. They should act like mature adults, and they should act like believers. And, uh, and, and be gracious to one another. Discipline your own children. Don't discipline other people's children. That's not the job that God has given you. God didn't tell you to, to be the, the, you know, the one who wields the rod of discipline on somebody else's children. And I, you know, and I, frankly speaking, um, I don't really like it when other people tell me how I ought to raise my children. Uh, because 
that's just not their business and they don't know my kids. Um, I think God's Word can teach me how. And, and when a pastor preaches and he's preaching the Word of God and then God can convict my heart, but we don't need to go around acting like, you know, we're some sort of expert in the matter because I've seen, I've seen people that acted like experts and their children didn't turn out too well at all. Their children became, you know, a great, uh, broke their heart later. And so we should, we should be very careful about that. Now, generally speaking, we can expect that those with the greatest ambition are going to be the greatest offenders. Those who have the highest level of pride or the highest level of desire to rise above others are going to be some of the greatest offenders. And that's why the Lord Jesus set a little child in the midst of the disciples, because it is the childlike spirit that is hardest to offend. Although offenses are going to come, that, that doesn't mean that we should be naive. The Bible wants us to have, to possess a childlike faith, but not to be childish in our behavior or in our thinking. And uh, so those, uh, those likely to offend others, I think, should read this carefully and take heed, because there are just some people who seem intent to that if there's a group of people they're they're going to be the one they're going to be the voice you know they're going to be the one that is becomes the spokesman for the group there there are just people like that that's their ambition i'm a pastor but but i that's never been my ambition to lead a group or or, or to be the loudest voice in a group um but I know some people that, that that's how they are. And frankly speaking, when I've seen them, when they do offend somebody, they generally don't care. It doesn't smite their conscience at all. Eh, so what? You know, they need to learn to get over it. They need to toughen up, you know. And uh, it's not a light matter to offend others. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have put it in the Bible. And what's more, he begins in verse 7 by saying, Whoa! Whoa! What was always associated with a pending judgment? God has given sinners the freedom to choose. He gave you the freedom to choose to accept Christ or not accept Christ. And he doesn't, uh, hello, how are you? Yeah. He doesn't, God, uh, God gives us gives sinners the freedom to choose, but he does not, however, give them the right to choose the consequences of their sin. So if somebody sins, there's always going to be a consequence to sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They lost their place in the Garden of Eden. They eventually died. They no longer had the same fellowship with God. There's always a consequence to our sin. Even after we become a Christian, and, and understand, I believe, and this church believes, that when you became a Christian, the day that you asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sin and to save your soul, the day you called upon Jesus to be your Savior, all your sin was forgiven. All your past sin, all your present sin, all the sin that you haven't even committed yet, it was all put under the blood of Christ. And, and, and God was satisfied. God looked at you, and, and God 
said that person is justified because the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. But if we sin as a Christian, we still are going to suffer the consequences in this life of our sin. If we do what we know is wrong, we're going to have a bad relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're not going to have peace when we pray. By the way, I don't think people who, who have known sin in their life pray anyways. I, 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 I knew some, uh, some, some people that, that they were, I believe, genuine earnest in their, in their prayer. They were praying for the wrong thing. But I think somebody who goes through life and they're like, yeah, I know that this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. I don't know how that person can pray. They might as well pray to that fan because it's not going to be any more efficacious uh, than, than praying to God when we have known sin in our life. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. And uh, so uh, God, uh, God alone can uh, determine the the judgment, the righteous, perfect righteous judgment uh, upon uh, people who sin. Uh, but you know God usually tells us uh, what the consequences are going to be. And so we do well here to take heed uh, to what we say and what we do. And also we should remember that God can overpower evil with good. Amen? Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. What does it say? All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. That's the life of Joseph. All things work together good. His brothers were jealous of him. All things work together for good. His brothers threw him in a pit. They were debating about killing him. All things work together for good. They sold him to the Ishmaelites and then they went and took him down to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. Now he's a slave in Egypt. All things work together for good. Then Potiphar has a, has a trampy wife. And she's trying to seduce him. And he refuses. He won't sin against God. And so she has him thrown into prison. And he's there for at least 11 years. If you read the chronology, he was in prison in Egypt for 11 years. All things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. And uh, so, uh, let's go on. The Lord uh, goes from a general woe in verse 7 to a specific woe upon a specific offense. Uh, look at verse number 7 again. It says, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man, and that's that man is very specific. It's not every man, it's not any man, it's that man, upon whom the, not offenses, the offense cometh. That, I think, is clearly talking about Judas Iscariot, because he was going to offend Jesus. Woe unto the world because of offenses, but really woe on that one, because he was going to die without getting his offense resolved. And those who die in their sins 
are going to be no better off than, than Judas Iscariot. Judas, you know, he's, he's long dead. He's suffering in hell. He's like the rich man who lift up his eyes being in torment and, you know, desire just a drop of water on his tongue. That's, that's where Judas Iscariot is now. But you know what? He, he sure looked good for three years, didn't he? I mean, he blended right in with all the rest of the disciples, men who were truly regenerate. We should all take heed because if we're not concerned about the fact that we may have offended others, then it may be that we're a kindred spirit with that wicked man. Maybe we haven't received Christ as our Savior because you know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that there's going to be people who are going to say at the end that it is the Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? We've cast devils out in your name. We've done wonderful works in your name. And what's, what's Christ going to say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because they're trying to tell him what they did. Even if they did it in his name. They're trying to tell him what they did. When I teach, when I taught in Matthew chapter 8, or Romans chapter 8, on Wednesday evenings, Romans chapter 8, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which walk not after the flesh, but walk in the Spirit. <clears throat> walk in the Spirit. Do you know that you can, you can keep all of the commandments in the flesh? That's what the rich young ruler did when he came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. He said, Lord, Lord, what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know what the law said. Don't do this, don't do that. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of that have I done from my youth up. And did Jesus say, oh yeah, right, you think you have. Did Jesus accuse him of being a liar? No, he didn't. You can do all. You can obey the Bible in the flesh to be seen of men, to look better than others, to justify yourself. But that's not walking in the Spirit. And, and that's what some people do. They, that some, there are some believers that they just keep walking in the flesh because they're not walking in the Spirit. The Spirit of God will never lead us to do anything contrary to the Word of God. You know, somebody says, well, you know, I want to win my friends to the Lord, so I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to drink a few drinks with them and then I'm going to start singing Amazing Grace. No, the Spirit of God didn't lead you to go into the bar. Didn't lead you to drink. Didn't lead you to sing Amazing Grace in the bar to the drunks. The Spirit of God never leads us to do anything contrary to the Word of God. If we are walking in the Spirit, we're living in the Word. So, uh, let me just uh, say this real quickly. Errors can serve the distinguishing, uh, the function of distinguishing between that which is true and that which is false. And uh, there's also uh, then a distinction between those who keep the truth and those who, who turn from it. And to know that truth, we have to know the Bible. We have to know the Bible. And the errors uh, will be that which is not in agreement with the Bible. It's important to understand the 
Bible in the context in which the Spirit of God gave it to us. Because if you take a text and you remove it from the context, you can make it into a pretext, which means something that's not true. So we always have to understand the Bible in the context in which it's given, and we'll see that very soon when we get to the next section here in Matthew chapter 18, because I think that the verse in the whole Bible that is taken out of context more than any other verse is where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Why? Because people say, well, I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to stay home with my family because where two or three are gathered... There am I in the midst of them. Well, we're not going to go to church. We don't like our pastor, so we're going to leave and we're going to go meet here at this park at a picnic table. Me and my friend who complain about the church, and we're going to we're going to claim this verse. That's not the context in which it was given. The context is church discipline, and and we'll look at that. Uh, boy, can I do all this? Three more pages in five minutes. Let me see, because I don't want to keep doing lesson two forever. Uh, verses eight and nine, uh, we see the severe response. The severe response. For wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. Whoop, chop that hand off. Pluck that eye off. Cut out that tongue. It didn't say tongue, but according to... James chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, that's where our real problem lies. It's not the eye, it's not the hand, it's certainly not the feet. Our big problem is our tongue when it comes to offenses, right? And uh, so, if a single offense carries such a severe threat, woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. If a single offense carries such a severe threat, what about a lifetime pattern uh, of such sin? The message of Christ is that it's better to enter into the kingdom of heaven maimed than to be an offender. And of course, being a Christian doesn't mean that we cannot or that we never will offend others. Part of our sanctification uh, is gaining the self-discipline not to sin with our mouth or with our hands or with our our feet or even with our eyes. And since those injunctions are obviously not meant to be taking taken literally as, uh, do you know who Origen is? How many have ever heard of Origen? Origen was a, uh, in uh, around 200 to around 250 AD, he was one of, he's called one of the church fathers, and he, he was from Alexandria, Egypt, and he, there's a ton of writing left from Origen, and he's constantly quoted as this great Christian man, but, well, he, he read this passage, and he knew that he had trouble with lust, so he, yeah, he castrated himself. If the heart is wicked, the whole body will follow. If the heart is pure, the body will be as well. The issue is always the heart, right? Mm -hmm. It's always the heart. That's what Proverbs 4.23 says. The problem is our heart. And there are blind men that are very, that have impure minds and they're quite capable of imagining <clears throat> what they don't have eyes to see. And so, uh, then uh, quickly the surprising revelation 
in uh, verse number 10, uh, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And uh, I know that some of the great names in Christianity have said this means everybody has a garden angel. Every little baby has a garden angel. Ah, uh, really? Really? Is there another verse in the whole Bible that would sort of lend credence to that? There isn't. The word angel is, it can have many meanings. In Revelations 2 and 3, we see the letters to the seven churches are addressed to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the angel of the church at Laodicea. The angel was the pastor. I think angels in this case mean the departed spirit of those children. So every baby that's aborted before its birthday, their angel, their departed spirit is beholding the face of God in heaven. Every child that's murdered by some horrible, wicked person, every child that dies because of neglect, because of bad parents, every child that's run over because of a drunk driver, their angels behold the face of God in heaven, and someday he's going to adjudicate on their behalf. And I'll tell you what, woe unto them. It's better if a millstone were tied about their neck and they were cast into the depths of the sea. Because that's how much God loves these little children. And then real quickly, this, the 